When they were first invented, computers were serious business. Electronic data processing has suddenly appeared as a new helper for the businessman. It follows management's instructions exactly. But today, artists are using computers in much more experimental ways. At the time that these pieces of technology uh, were sort of trickling down into the artist's studio, I was in graduate school. And there is still something in the back of my head that just says, you know, wh wh why don't you tear this apart and see what's in there? I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, what a sculptor has learned from computer science. And later, why the ancient art of woodblock printmaking can be a mouthwatering experience. I compare art making and the materials to something delicious, maybe like fudge. And so when I'm carving the wood, I think about the taste. But first, artist Sam Blanchard. Sam's a professor of visual art at Virginia Tech and a practicing artist. He's a sculptor, but he doesn't use marble and stone. Instead, his work uses computer processors, 3D design software, and video images. Sam, when do you think you became interested in using parts of computers and technology as actual sculpture? Well, I suppose I was probably making sculpture, but I wouldn't have called it that. My mom would entertain my visions, uh, constructing things in the basement, and I could kind of tinker with things. I was a big taker-aparter. So the early years was a lot of that just exploring and the toys, they would have like a lifespan. And, you know, this was the era where everything had some batteries and a motor in, in every little toy. My, my brother and I, uh, we really would try and figure out how to like hack these apart and make our own toys, you know, make our own sort of movements or sensors and things like that. Did you and your brother do any films? Uh, yeah, we did. We uh, <laughs> When my mom first got a camcorder, I was probably in the sixth grade and my brother was probably in the fourth grade, something like that. And we were kind of latchkey kids, you know, and, and we had a lot of freedom and, and we had a few hours after school before my mom would get home from work. We would make a lot of, looking back on it, very sort of experimental films. My favorite is uh, me sitting on things just around the house <laughs> and my brother being sort of the producer and the camera person, just like two second clips of... Sam sitting on things. So from the front stoop to the refrigerator, to the banister, to the couch, to the back porch, just like really sort of dry humor um, <laughs> films. And yeah, I, I think we probably made a few of those over, over the years, I think. That's the most memorable one for sure. There's so many of your pieces now where I see the dry humor at play. Tell me about the one where you are high atop a platform being shaved in a very scary fashion by robotic arms that are super long and coming crazy close to skin. Yeah. You know, a lot of my work is trying to share an experience, trying to uh, have people maybe empathize. And the time I made that, I was maybe 32 and sort of losing my hair. And when you start to lose your hair, haircuts don't become that much fun. Uh, so I decided to make a piece about it. So, you know, how do you translate the anxiety or the uncomfortableness that you have uh, in this very personal moment in your life in a barber chair? What, what I typically do is I'll, I'll take something that's sort of more universal as like a fear. So, for instance, like a fear of heights, right? So in that case, um, that piece is a, it's a barber chair that's been extended to 13 feet tall. Uh, and so I would sit on that barber chair. And from down below, I would get like a, a haircut with all the implements on, on big long poles that would just sort of like smack against my my head or, or, or give me a little cut. Um, Did you get a cut? Oh yeah, yeah, sure. It's probably not the first time I've, I've been hurt by the, uh, by the artistic process. Huh, let me talk about some of your other works and see how you got your inspiration. So let me start with the virtual reality kayak. I think mm. it's called the Maui kayak? The Maui simulator. Yeah. So, I spend a lot of time in my office. I'm an artist that works with computers a lot. A lot of curtains drawn, staring at a screen. A few years ago, maybe a couple years ago, I, I discovered these YouTube live cameras. 
they're all over the place. You, you know, there's one in Havar, Croatia that I loved that was just this beautiful panning across this little sea town, this little perfect port city. And you'd see people walking across and, you know, right, walking home from dinner and things like that. And something struck me about like how real that was, that I could, I was there right now and that the computer was less of a screen and more of a window at that point. One of the other favorites on that YouTube live is a humpback whale sanctuary in Maui. It basically just just looks out on this little piece of ocean and just sort of pans across. So you just you just see the the waves lapping just one after the other. There's nice audio, you can hear them just one after the other. It's very relaxing. And I was thinking how do I take that experience and and push that bring that even closer to me and uh, with the Maui Simulator Project, I wrote a program that analyzes that Maui YouTube live feed. It analyzes the waves as they come in and translates them to a series of motors that actually move a kayak that you can ride up and down along the waves in real time in parallel with the waves lapping in Maui. It's really compelling. If you look online at the video of the Maui Simulator, you see a woman in a kayak, and the kayak's motion is sort of with the waves. You can just imagine the kayak undulating, and around her on many sides or looking through a screen, she's seeing the very experience that she's feeling in her kayak. Yeah, I, I hope it's very meditative. There's something very romantic about the idea of those waves, you know, traveling across an ocean and then terminating on the shore in Maui, and then that that image, that that sort of movement being translated all the way from Maui over to Blacksburg, Virginia. Um, the, the, the way that the sort of geography sort of shrinks our universe. Um, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily need to be someplace that you've been and you miss. You know, I can, I can hope to be there. You know, I can still hope to go to Havar, Croatia and, and, you know, have dinner and walk down that boardwalk. So the barbershop experience and the Maui simulator have people in them and are people-centric. What about the installation that was really this tall, room-sized cone of green, waving computer circuits? Yeah, so those green panels are actually the computers themselves. They're little inexpensive computers called Raspberry Pis. And on the surface of this form that's about 9 feet tall and 8 feet wide and is somewhat cylindrical, each of these panels articulates in and out based on how much computational load they might have. And so what you end up seeing are the patterns that are usually inside the computer, the patterns of distribution, the way the computer is actually thinking is sort of represented physically through movement in that uh, sculptural form. One of your most recent works is more overtly political. It's called Authorized Personnel Only. Yeah, I'm, I'm always doing work that's about what's on my mind. And I think most artists will probably say that. And how can, you know, our, our sort of political climate not be on your mind today? That piece, it's a flagpole with an American flag on it that's about 25 feet tall. And every 30 minutes, it will reorient itself and find a new trajectory um, to point towards randomly. It's, it's an analog for, you know, just waking up, watching the news in the morning, something new, let's, the country's going over here, something new, the country's going over there, and just this, this sort of constant change. One of your recent works was using crowdsource sculpture. What mm -hmm. is crowdsource sculpture? Well, I guess it's a name that I came up with. Um, by taking the three most searched sculptures on Google, you know, your big hits, right? Your Michelangelo's David, Rodin's Thinker, Venus de Milo. So what I would do is I would take uh, one of those search terms, like Michelangelo David, type that into Google. Then I would grab about the first 100, 150 images that I would find of tourists visiting that statue, you know, maybe doing a selfie with the statue behind them or just like any, any viewpoint that they might have. Then, taking all those photos that I would collect via that search, I could put them into some software called photogrammetry software. It would recompile, it would find triangulate points on that sculpture, 
and recreate a three-dimensional form within the computer. So a, a 3D model, a virtual 3D model. Incomplete and flawed 3D model, but still very much representative of portions of the sculpture. And then uh, 3D printing those out in uh, a nylon plastic. So the end result you see, for instance, the Michelangelo David, you get about um, two-thirds of the, the sort of front sculpture. Oh, because nobody's ever taking the picture from behind. Exactly. Um, <laughs> nobody's ever taking a picture of the top of the head, so yeah. you don't have the top of the head. Uh, the Rodin thinker is, is a great example of that. Usually when you see a sculpture like that, you know, the, 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 the thinker being the, the guy with the elbow on the knee, um, uh, usually you see those on plinths, right? Pretty high up. And because of that, you don't see a lot of people taking pictures of the back of the head because you'd have to be, you know, in a helicopter flying over the thing, right? Uh, so the back of the head in the Rodin thinker piece is just totally absent. Like, it's almost complete all the way around except for that top portion. What did you get out of it? So there's two things about it. I, I guess one of them simply is you understand what people are looking at, or at least what they're taking pictures of. The other thing that I think that particular project really resonated with me because it's a model for what could be in the future. That is to say, like, I, I read a study that uh, 3 billion photos are shared openly on searchable databases every day. And I think that article is like three years old. So today you, you can only imagine. And the quality of the pictures gets better. Um, so you're getting way more, way higher quality. At some point out in the future, you will have enough data that's out just floating in the ether of the internet uh, to actually get a, a, uh, enough information to get like a real photorealistic version of those things or of, you know, a 2002 Honda Civic or a Starbucks coffee cup that the information is out there. It just needs to be uh, collected and translated in the right way. We're actually working, I'm working with um, some colleagues at Virginia Tech um, in engineering, and and we're sort of making a, a machine that does all of those things all at once. And so we can sort of make a, a print of something today, like we can search Michelangelo David today, and we can get a certain type of quality of rendering. We can do it three months from now. Logic would dictate it's going to be more accurate. We can do it six months from now even more more so. And then, you know, at some point out in the distant future, it will be perfect, right? It will be very much photorealistic. Will you try it? Yeah. And I would imagine that the technology will be there at some point. I mean, the information just keeps growing. It's not stopping. I don't know. I don't see it going backwards. So the, the trend is to, to have a more and more public life. And we, we choose photos to, to share that it's really exciting to hear that you're working with your colleagues at a school like Virginia Tech, which is so renowned for its engineering, math, science, STEM areas, that that there can be this creative outlook for people to come together and make art and and surprising items of whimsy and possible usefulness. I do work with a lot of engineers and some brilliant people in all sorts of you know, technical fields um, that are well beyond my understanding. The reason that these projects come about, you know, in the gallery, in the museum, even even a failure can be a result, right? Whereas in, in these really definitive fields, that bridge either works or it doesn't work, right? So the perfect example is what we just talked about, the uh, crowdsourced sculptures, right? So those are not realistic versions of Michelangelo's David, right? But what it does do is it, even in the flawed result that's presented, it's the idea that's there, that's present. And, and it's only, you're only aware of it because of the flaws. If it was photorealistic, if it was actually perfect, it, we would just think it was something from a gift shop, right? It's what attracts a lot of people in fields like engineering and computer science to to work with artists, I think, is because the outcomes aren't quite as defined. So besides your brother and your mother, who is the artist, who else along the way has inspired you using technology and art installations that really charmed or interested you? Hmm. 
Well, I was very lucky to kind of come up. And about the time that a lot of these things that we're talking about, like microcontrollers and motors and all these computers and things like that, were sort of trickling down into the artist's studio, I was in graduate school at the Rhode Island School of Design. And there's this guy, Paul Badger, who taught this class called The Artist's Machine on how you can leverage these things, how you can like make motors turn, uh, how you can do really simple programming. You don't have to be a computer science whiz or anything like that. You can have sort of just some cursory knowledge of each of these areas and be able to implement them into your, uh, into your work. And so I, I owe him a lot. Sam Blanchard is an assistant professor of visual art at Virginia Tech. Coming up next, turning blocks of wood into fantastical works of art. Marcia Neblett has been a woodblock printmaker for nearly three decades. Neblett carves fairy tale scenes and human-animal hybrids into wood, rendering her fantasy images in ink. Marcia, who is an assistant professor of fine arts at Norfolk State University, recently traveled to India on a Fulbright scholarship and taught drawing and printmaking in the city of Chennai. Marcia, growing up, did you always know you were going to be an artist? I did. I was fortunate to grow up in a family where my mother was an artist, an art teacher. So really from age five, I recall telling people I wanted to be an art teacher and an artist. And I haven't strayed from that. So your mother was an artist and art teacher. Did you paint and draw with her? I did. And um, she's still active, actually, as a professional artist and as a child, at the age of nine, I attended the 92nd Street Y with her at one point where we were sculpting from a nude model just a couple times, but it was probably my most special memory with her that we did together back then. Sort of daring as a mother, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> what drew you to woodblock printmaking specifically? How did you learn about that and know that was something for you? I had been pursuing painting and sculpting, which were always in the hierarchy, sort of the more important or popular arts to study. And the printmaking course was required. And immediately I fell in love with the material. Do you remember what it felt like when you first sort of put a knife to the wood and went, oh, <laughs> this is for me? It almost felt so natural. There wasn't even this feeling. It was like, of course, it was like breathing. You know, if you were to dive into a water, you know, into a swimming pool and the temperature is perfect, I knew it instantly. And it's such a blessing thinking about that. I don't know how and why that is. But art, art making is a craft. So whatever medium an artist is using, if they love it, they're excited by not just how it looks, but how it feels, maybe even how it smells and sounds. And that's where I get excited with the wood. See, there's this chip, chip, chunk, you know. And then the sound as you're rolling the brayer of ink across the print. I compare that to a thunderstorm, a distant thunderstorm on the horizon in an ocean. There might be a splash and a slither of ink. And I never tell my students to taste their art materials, but I joke about it. And I compare art making and the materials to something delicious, maybe like fudge. And so when I'm carving the wood, I think about the taste also. Do you remember what that first print was? It was. It was actually a skeleton. It was a very medieval scene. Um, I was in my 20s thinking about good and evil, you know, reading the Old Testament, taking philosophy and medieval art history. And so those images, those real strong, dark images were in my head at the time. What's the process like for woodcut prints? Woodblock printmaking is a subtractive process where on a plank of wood you carve away what you do not want. So a drawing is made first on the wood and then the light spots or what's left in the wood. This is the way I do it. You carve away those parts you do not want. So the raised or the part remaining on the wood is what is actually printed and inked. So it's a little reverse of other printmaking forms and also the way one might think of drawing and painting where you draw and you paint and the mark is what you see. 
In the printmaking, in the relief printmaking of the wood block, in order to get the image, you have to remove the parts around those lines. So that's kind of exciting, and that's the mystery and the mind twister, if you will, of making a woodblock print. What makes for a great woodblock artist? Patience, excellent design skills, research, prepping, studying for imagery, and then the managing of the tools, how you're holding them, how you're angling them. I use very detailed tiny woodcut tools, and I have a lot of them sharpened and ready to go. I take care of them as I would my artwork, too, because the tools you use are just as important as what you make. I have to imagine that these days there are technological tools you can use that would create this for you without all the laborious, painstaking craftsmanship. Absolutely. Um, You can, through the computer, scan a drawing and have a laser etched woodcut made in a matter of, you know, in very little time. And that's where the computer is certainly involved. But then that takes away the joy of carving and chipping the wood, the smell of the pine. Um, It's like giving your work to someone else to do. And sometimes that can be a good thing if you have a need for production. But then, since the process is such a part of the love of this medium, taking that away sort of, for me, would lose the point of making it. What are some of your favorites? Probably my favorite woodcuts would be the Hansel and Gretel series. What drew you to Hansel and Gretel? So it's images, you know, as a visual artist that one is drawn to as well as a story. But I was drawn to the pictures and the images of the forest, of the candy house, and of course of the story. And I saw it as a narrative that would work well from left to right in a long series that I produced. I'd also attended an opera in New York, Hansel and Gretel, and I watched it performed. And I kept seeing these images of Hansel and Gretel in different different art forms. And it sort of was starting to come together before I began those sketches for that piece. I have always liked the idea that it's one spread, that you can see it. So when I designed this particular um, wood block, I designed it as three parts that could be exhibited separately or all together. And each one is three feet by one foot tall, so that in total length, it's nine feet Ah. from start to finish. How long did it take you? There must be intricate detail in those nine feet. There was um, at least eight months, and I mean full time. And that's with a, a pretty small grant, not a lot of money. So it is a sacrifice. And also I used scalpel knives, which I picked up at medical school stores where they sell them for students training in surgery. And I would replace the blades with the tiny scalpel knives. So it was was interesting, (laughs) to say the least. And you used a magnifying glass for some of it. Mm Mm-hmm. And that, that definitely helps. Good light clear markers to delineate every area you're carving. If there's a carved mistake area, a little red marker is used, and I can go back and glue it back in, sometimes leave it out. But yeah, the process itself is a journey. I also love the storybook drawings that you have, the emotional detail and drama. I remember poring over the color plates and classic books that I had as a child Grimm's fairy tales and others. And I was so drawn in to the artist's depiction of those fanciful worlds. <laughs> those were those were a lot of fun to do. I had to put myself in the role, if you will, of Little Red Riding Hood and then the wolf. And when I drew them, I was really acting both roles so that my studio neighbors could hear a, a wolf growling. I'm sharing this now. Have you illustrated any books? So I've always approached my images as fine art to be in a gallery or museum, right? I wasn't thinking of them in terms of mass books or illustrations. But really, there isn't much difference. I mean, Albrecht Durer's Great Woodcuts illustrated the Bible. Um, So I would just shift my thinking if I was going to turn these images into a book. 
I also love some drawings you have that are beautifully crafted and very imaginatively done that are half animal, half people. Ah, yes, yes. And they're intriguing Mm -hmm. to me as a grown-up. And I can imagine a child just going off on images like that that would really invite a lot of fantasy. I call them the hybrids or composite creatures. And what's so enjoyable about doing that is absolutely what you say, the fantasy element. You know, think of all the animals that you can combine with a human, and it just goes on and on and on. And, you know, there's infinite number of characters to be made, and that's what's so exciting. Describe some um, of the combinations you've created. Yeah. yeah. So I do love to use fish heads on people, and I think fish are beautiful. Maybe something linked to the mermaid, you know, the fish tail with a woman, but I do the fish head on the human body. Also birds. Birds are beautiful. The feathers, the colors, the intricate patterns. And that's been another animal head that I have plucked on top of human bodies and used as well. You've spent a lot of time in your career in various other countries. Where have you seen some exciting schools of art emerging elsewhere? I've always been intrigued with the tradition in England. There's a strong book printmaking, woodcut tradition there that's still very popular, more so than here. Right. But then now going to Asia, they have just boomeranged recently and art from China and India. Now those contemporary markets and scenes are quite hot, as well as the Middle East. And there's a combination of figurative and abstract work coming out of those places. What about you for the future? What's the dream piece you may be playing with in your mind now? Any more epic nine-foot scrolls? (laughs) So I've been playing with the Hindu monkey god Hanuman. Uh, This character, this mighty ape that inspires us to face ordeals and conquer obstructions, you know, to deal with life. And probably in some way to summarize my India travels. Well, Marsha Neblett, thank you so much for sharing your art with me today on With Good Reason. Thank you so much. Marsha Neblett is an assistant professor of fine arts at Norfolk State University and an internationally known woodblock printmaker. She's also the recipient of multiple Fulbright scholarships. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Under the Tuscan Sun is a romantic comedy about a recently divorced writer who buys a villa in Tuscany on a whim, hoping it will lead to changes in her life. This is a scene from the film made from the book. You have beautiful eyes, Francesca. I wish I could swim inside them. (laughs) What? No, it's just, that's exactly what... American women think Italian men say. (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm really nervous, you know? I was married for a long time. And since then, there there hasn't been anybody. Would you like to help me change that? This film was based on the book Under the Tuscan Sun by Frances Mays. Since then, Frances Mays wrote another book called Under Magnolia. It's about her coming of age in the Deep South and the South's powerful influence on her life. Frances, you have lived for years toggling between beautiful homes in San Francisco and Tuscany. What drove you to be lured to the East Coast and settle in North Carolina recently? I returned to my roots. I was raised in Georgia, born and raised in Georgia, and I was on a book tour in Oxford, Mississippi once and just felt this old connection with the South again. I think there's something in the land where you were born that 
your body identifies with. It's something kind of mysterious to me, a place that uh, calls you as home, even if it isn't home. Like I felt that way in Tuscany immediately. I felt this is a place where I could be at home. So returning here after a whole grown-up lifetime in San Francisco, I just had this kind of metabolic connection, pulse-level connection that felt right and made me want to come back. Have you given up any of the other homes? We have no stake in California anymore, although I still miss it. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't San Francisco wonderful? San Francisco is divine, but um, North Carolina is a lot closer to Italy. <laughs> and you do go to Italy or stay how, off, how long and how often? We kind of divide our year between North Carolina and Italy. Is it ever wearying to be the icon for women of a certain age who see you as showing them the way that they could completely remake themselves midlife in the most fantastic experience possible? Well, the thing is, you can if you really want to. And I still love when I'm in Italy, going into town in the morning, sitting down in the piazza for a coffee, and I see across the way a woman alone writing in a little notebook. And I always think, good for her. Uh, that risk can lead you to a new place, a, a good place. It's so interesting to see what you write so truthfully and so deftly in Under Magnolia. In my life in cities, I've always heard people be very dismissive of places like the place I grew up. I know that life there is passionate and intense and that people live vivid, important lives. That was one of my purposes in writing Under Magnolia, to show the profundity of life in small towns and the complexity of it. Tell me about Fitzgerald. How did it come by, that name and its existence? It was um, established after the Civil War by veterans from both the North and the South, and the borders are named after southern and northern battleships from the war, and the east-west streets are named for southern flowers, and the north-south streets are named for southern and northern generals. It's so interesting to see what you write so truthfully and so deftly in Under Magnolia. You're not afraid to show your parents as the complex parents that they were growing up in that fascinating tiny little town in Georgia? Yes. My parents, if you look at the hardback cover of Under Magnolia, you see they both had the fatal gift of beauty. They were just gorgeous people. And I think that beauty was in a way a curse because I think they both expected that life would just enlarge around them without them having to do anything for that to happen. They were full of life, always ready to go. My father said, family motto is packing and unpacking. So I think my impulse to travel came from their restlessness, and I have a bit of their restlessness too. Would you mind reading something from Under Magnolia for me that moves you? Yes, I'll read this little passage about my father coming in from hunting. He took me hunting a lot, so I was very involved in his returns from his hunting trips. He opens his buff hunting coat, and in all the small interior pockets, doves' heads droop. He and his friends Bascom and Royce break out the bourbon. From my room in the back of the house, right off the kitchen, I see through the keyhole, keyholes are a large part of childhood, the doves he's killed piled on the counter, and someone's hand cleaning a shotgun barrel with a dish rag. The terrible plop-ploop sound of feathers being plucked makes me bury my face under the pillow. When his friends go, my father stays at the table with his tumbler of bourbon. I'm reading with the flashlight under the covers. My specialty is orphans on islands, where houses have trapped doors into secret passageways that lead to the sea. Rowboats, menace, treasure, and no parents in the story. As the water darkens and danger grows, I hear my father talking to himself. 
When I quietly crack the door, I see his head in his hands, his blood-stained coat hung on a hook. Very late, he hits the wall with his fist and says over and over, beastly, Christly, beastly, Christly. I put the palm of my hand over the spot where he is pounding with his fist and feel the vibration all the way up my arm. I press my nose to the window screen and look out at the still backyard. Why was he angry? That was a question that I tried to answer in the book, but I never really knew. He was a very wild boy. He was sent off to Georgia Military Academy because he pushed a high school teacher down the stairs, and he was always in trouble. But he played the saxophone. He raised doves. He did a lot of uh, sweet things in his youth as well. Was there anything that kept you away from town? When you left, did you think, I don't want to go back? Not much. I fled. Uh, My family's fond of saying, you took the first thing smoking on the runway out of here. And then I say, there wasn't (laughs) a runway out of here. (laughs) I wanted to get into the wide world. I, Even as a high school student, I um, pictured myself in Paris with a ponytail and big sunglasses and When I started to apply to colleges, my grandfather, who was sending me to college, said, you can go anywhere you want as long as it's not north of the Mason-Dixon line. So I got as far as Virginia. I felt like I had gone up north when I got to Virginia. Where did you go? I went to Randolph-Macon Women's College. All Women's College? What was that like for you? Well, there's a long chapter in the book about it called 10,000 Rules to Live By. I'd had a free experience growing up, had a lot of freedom, and I got to this wonderful, tough women's college in Lynchburg, and I was constrained all around because they had, at that time, so many rules. I was chafing against those rules the minute I got there. Such as? Well, you couldn't go out without a senior in a car. You had to sign in and out with date books and uh, you couldn't drink within 20 miles of the campus which caused a lot of people just to die to get 20 miles away to have a beer (laughs) and um, it was very rigorous the academic program the fact that they actually expected you to study how I ended up at a girls school I don't know but we made many escapes to Charlottesville and to Lexington, to Washington and Lee, and even as far as Annapolis and Princeton. So by the time I had gotten to my sophomore year, I decided I needed to go to a bigger university, to the University of Florida after that. I went out with a different date every night. It was just great. What is next for you? Is something else in the works? I have a novel idea that I'm pondering over, I'm also thinking of writing another travel book. Where are you thinking the next travel focus will be? It's going to be Italy. Italy is so vast and so uh, layered that I think you need five lifetimes to get to the bottom of it, if ever. Tell me a little bit about your mother's recipes. She was such a fabulous cook, and you are a wonderful cook yourself. What do you like to remember and share with others? She made monumental cakes. A lane cake is one of the big classics. It's got about 90 ingredients. It has fruit in it and it's very layered. Um, She made this thing called Franklin nut cake. And she always decorated her cakes. Like my birthday cake was always uh, with pink icing and she always put camellias around it. Presentation of the food was just part of the cooking, the table was beautiful. We started talking at dinner, the noonday meal, about what we were going to have that night. It was just food, food, food. My husband is a wonderful cook, and I think it was cooking in Italy that really liberated us because there, the cooking is very simple. All you require is primo ingredients, and then you've got it.
Under Magnolia is the latest memoir by author Francis Mays. Coming up next, Saving the Factory. The Bassett Furniture Company was once the world's biggest wood furniture manufacturer. Run by the same powerful Virginia family for generations, it was also the center of life in Bassett, Virginia. This was before the rise of Asian imports that began dismantling the U.S. furniture industry piece by piece in the early 1990s. In her book, Factory Man, Beth Macy brings to life the story of the factory owner who battled offshoring to save his family's furniture business and the jobs of the workers in his town. Yeah, it's a really interesting story. So in 1902, a wily Saul Miller named J. Bassett Sr. had the idea to stop sending his wood north to the factories in Michigan and New York using cheap labor and hiring former sharecroppers and former slaves from the countryside, he would basically build a factory in his front yard. He had competitors in North Carolina, of course, also a large number of factories there had already been been up and going. He did something kind of different. He hired African-Americans to work in the factories alongside the whites. And they were largely in segregated departments, and they had some of the worst jobs. They did the rub room and the sanding and the finishing. And he paid them half of what he paid the white workers. So that gave him the competitive edge over his North Carolina competitors, who were not hiring African-Americans. They were still relegating them at the time to sharecropping. And they had um, modernized and conveyorized during World War II under the direction of J.D. Bassett's son, W.M. Bassett. And then they were really in a great place to become the largest furniture maker in the world. So how did Bassett Furniture go from being the largest wood furniture maker in the world to 20 or so years later collapsing? I wouldn't say Bassett Furniture collapsed, but they sell a lot less furniture than they once did. What happened was, in the last 15 years, that region alone, where Bassett is, has lost 20,000 jobs, which is half of its workforce. Let me come back to what John Bassett, uh, the factory man of the title of your book, did to sort of fight this trend. At some point, he realizes, oh my gosh, furniture companies around me here in the 80s and 90s are succumbing and closing their doors, he stood up against that trend. Right. There was one dresser in particular that was really threatening to take the whole industry down. And I think it showed up on the market in early 2002. It had a sticker on the back. All it said was Dalian China. And so he and his son, Wyatt, took off with a family friend who spoke Mandarin and was originally from Taiwan and who harbored no love for the mainland Chinese, that they went to these factories in China where the furniture was being produced at a much lower labor rate. John actually got to meet with the owner of this factory, which was being subsidized by the communist government. And he basically said to John Bassett III, you must close your factories down and put the business of Von Bassett Furniture totally in my hands. And John Bassett, for once in his life, didn't say a word. He's got a real temper. He got back in the car and he said to his son, Wyatt, close my factories. My grandfather would roll over in his grave. And that's when they decided they were already collecting ammunition because they had heard that there was this law in the books. It's a 1930 very dusty tariff act that says it's illegal to dump furniture in another country's market with the express. And dumping means that they're selling the furniture for less even than it costs to buy the wood to make the furniture. The guy in Dalian actually said to him, we are going to take a loss on this initial unloading of furniture in your market because that's the tuition we're going to pay to capture your market share and make you close your factories. I mean, he just said it. You quote the son Wyatt as saying, what happens when they destroy your industry is they then raise prices 30% once all your factories are gone. Yeah, and you you don't have anything left to compete with. I mean, it happened over and over again. By the time they learned about this law, uh, he had to get 51% of his industry just to join the coalition. And so they filed what at the time was the largest anti-dumping petition 
in the world against the People's Republic of China from Galax, Virginia, which is this tiny mountain town on the Blue Ridge Mountains that's very well known for bluegrass and barbecue. Oh, gosh. You know? Yeah. And, and yet here's this kind of eccentric, take-no-prisoners guy, and he's going to see everything to the end. I love the story that you paint of John Bassett. Once he decides to save his factory, he gathers all of his employees together and says, I can't do this by myself. We're going to do it together. I'm going to try to make sure none of you guys get laid off. These are the sacrifices I'm going to make, and I'm going to hope you can make too. Yeah, he talks about that. He he had the factory workers deconstruct the $100 dresser so they could prove that you know, it costs less than the price of the parts. To energize his troops, he would tell the workers, 700 workers in the factory, all the pl- other plants, factories that made furniture in Galax were closing, and they were very worried. And he said, I'm not going to lie to you. I need you to work harder. Probably not going to have a raise this year. Might not even be working 40 hours every week if we don't get the orders. But if you do your part and we can get this particular piece of furniture made in this a particular amount of time, then I can make X and we can keep the factory going. And they said, we're in. We're going to do it. So he said, one thing that China can't compete with is delivery because of you know all the weeks it takes to get it over here. And so they basically reinvented how they ship furniture. They'll deliver any furniture within a week's time. That really helped endear him to the mom and pop stores because they would only have to order one or two pieces to have on their floor. And then the factory would ship it directly to the store for the customer within one week. You know, you grew up the daughter of a displaced factory worker yourself. Tell me about your parents and your experience that motivated you even more than for most reporters to want to get at this? Yeah, I grew up in um, a town called Urbana, Ohio. And most of the people that I knew, their parents worked for Grimes Manufacturing, and that was um, an airplane light factory. My mom worked in the factory when the economy was good, and when it wasn't, she would get laid off. So I remember just growing up with the financial uncertainty all the time. I'm the first person in my family to go to college. And I did it with full financial aid. It allowed me to join the middle class, basically. It's something when I go to places like Bassett and Henry County now, I'm not sure the daughter of a factory worker or a former factory worker has that same possibility today. And that that sort of weighs on me. When my mom would get laid off, and my dad was a house painter, but he suffered from alcoholism and some PTSD issues. And he was not a provider, so it was pretty much all on my mom. And I grew up, like, hearing them say, well, maybe they're going to turn our gas off today. And I remember my mom once applied for food stamps, and she made, like, a dollar too much to get them. And that was really humiliating. But it also gave me um, just this sense that, like, where you start off in life isn't always fair. Like, is it fair that somebody else is born with more than you're born with or has more opportunity? It, it just gave me a sense of um, they're not bad people. They're not any smarter or dumber than I am. They were just born into a different set of situations. I'm always trying to figure out whether we got a good deal when we switched things in the 80s and 90s, but we started losing middle America and all these hardworking factory workers and jobs. What's your perspective? Yeah, it's really hard to tell. I mean, if you talk to a labor economist, they are very concerned. I mean, I interviewed a guy at MIT named David Otter, and what he showed, like down to a, a millimeter of a number, was that they, these regions where trade hit the hardest, skyrocketing rates of disability, food Food scarcity, food stamp usage, um, wage deflation, a lot of wage deflation. And to me, that was really telling. But, you know, it didn't come until it was too late, these studies. So so then I went, when I was writing the book, I went back and I looked at, so what was Congress talking about when they decided to, you know, agree that it'd be good if China joined the WTO? Well, President Clinton said it'll be a win-win. 
it'll be a win-win. We won't lose jobs. We will simply export more goods to China's growing consumer class. And that's a great theory. I mean, economists have been talking about that since Adam Smith. Maybe that'll happen, but I mean, not in these people's lifetime. It'll be decades before that community recovers. Beth Macy, thank you for talking with me today on With Good Reason. Thank you so much, Sarah. I enjoyed it. Early in the morning, factory whistle blows, and rises from bed and puts on his clothes. Man takes his lunch, walks out. Beth Macy's book, Factory Man, is now out in paperback. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods. Support also comes from the University of Virginia Health System, connecting doctors and patients through telemedicine to deliver high-quality care throughout Virginia, the U.S., and the world. UVAHealth.com. Support also comes from Smithfield, a global food company committed to providing food in a responsible way so consumers can share meals and memories with family and friends. Smithfieldfoods.com With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quance, Elliot Majerzik, Kelly Libby, Cass Adair, and Allison Byrne. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. Our intern is Georgiana Reed. To get the podcast, go to iTunes or to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.